Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There are cameras in the sky. Lasers in our living rooms. Get a friend. Get informed. Get involved. It's We're Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It is the 12th day of June 2014, and I'll be live here for the next hour. And also, I will be probably taking this Sunday off, so it will either it'll probably just inter- air the second half of the Tom Campbell interview, and that's where all the juicy stuff begins because we get off uh, a little off topic as far as talking to a physicist, and we talk about um, the world, how the world, and how people engage with one another, and um, very fascinating conversation. So I'll probably be airing that this Sunday, but. Um, Stay tuned. Who knows? I might do another tape to air because this show tonight will probably, yeah, I don't have enough time to do all the stuff that I want to do for this show. So I might do a uh, another part. Basically, I'm going to focus tonight on the Alphabet Soup organizations, a.k.a. the people that really do run the country, not the people up in the giant vestigial boob. And for people that understand symbology, we'll actually get that. People up there um, in the Capitol that do um, the voting and the vestigial signings of laws that get broken all the time and nobody gets in trouble, so why do we even write them? Who knows? I mean, shoot, we can just open the borders up and let millions of people come in and that's fine. We can helicopter them in, give them food. Yeah, make it happen. America is your playground. A lot of stuff on my mind, everybody. It has been a bonkers Last week, if you've been following politics, I tried to get away from this idea that my show was going to be strictly politically based. So what I'm trying to do is um, shift the idea of the paradigm to focus on one of the things that we can actually have control over, and that is the control of information. Currently now, Americans have no clue what's going on, and it's partly nescience, partly ignorance, and look up the definition of those two terms, and then we'll find a way to get there. Hold on one second. I think that uh, my stream just went dead. I'm going to try to pick it back up again. Um, not um, If you're listening on Blog Talk, it probably has not gone dead there, but I did just have um, my stream that was supposed to be going on um, JREV Radio get kicked down. So let's see if it's working. Oh, okay. It says we're working now. So if you are listening to me on JRev Radio, thank you for tuning in live. If you are listening to me via the Blog Talk Radio application or through the link that I post on Facebook and Twitter, thanks for tuning in. As always, love to hear the live listeners. Actually, don't love to hear you. Love to see you guys in the numbers. It's always fun because at least I know I'm not alone in this crazy universe. So thank you for so much for tuning in. It looks like the uh, glitch has been fixed, so we're rocking and rolling here. So... Um, 
Back to what I was saying before. We're going to get into the real crux of the matter. Who really does run your government and who really does run your life? And how much of that stuff that we really talked about um, last Thursday when my friend Alan Brown, when he was in studio, really does apply to what we're seeing here today? And what I mean by that is that the reality that we have been fed, spoon-fed from the time that we are teeny tiny little individual units of consciousness, if you want to steal Tom Campbell's um, uh, terminology, from that time until the time that you currently reside, I don't care how old you are, you're, I mean if you're listening to this, so I've seen my demographics on YouTube, anywhere from the age of 25 to probably like 45. So I appreciate you if you are listening because at least you're trying to make some sense out of this insane world. And as I've said before on this show, waking up is not some kind of destination that we have to get to. It's a constant development that we go through. You're constantly retooling your idea of the world. You're constantly finding out new stuff. You can't just say, hey, let's in the Fed and, and everything's fine. It's typically not how it works. And if you stop there, then I'm, I'm sorry because... You've only stunted yourself intellectually, and you're no better than the people that say that we need to um, vote Democrat because we need um, stronger unions, or want to vote Republican because I want to keep my guns, or something like that. So the political ideology needs to kind of go away, and we need to really start pointing the finger at the issues, and there goes the feed. Had such a great run. Trying to connect. Still trying to connect. Robert Watsman, if you are out there in cyberspace and you are listening to me, um, yeah, we're trying, man. But uh, for some reason, the feed does not like me. Or somebody doesn't like what I'm saying. And I really don't care if you do or do not like what I'm saying, for all I'm doing is telling you the truth as I see it. And the truth that I have come to know, and as we know, um, your opinion and your ideology and your scope of what you know about the world will change the more information you gather and the more that you um, become conceptually aware of how things are there to manipulate you. Uh, I, did a store, uh, I did a podcast, and I think it was podcast number nine, but I'll repost it in the link for this show because I'm going to have, basically you're barely going to hear me talk on this show because I have clips upon clips upon clips to play for you, which is great because I don't like hearing myself talk a bunch, but some people seem to like it. So anyway, as we move, once again, shifting back to the idea of who really runs this country and, and why and how, you know, and, and you have each side of the political spectrum wants to point fingers at certain individuals. Well, it's not really individuals per se. It's the idea of, um, you know, there's a couple of things. The idea of national security is kind of silly. I understand it to an extent if you're talking about like, you know, where, where the bombs are, that's pretty, you know, you probably want to keep that under wraps. But if you're talking about, you know, just any willy-nilly thing, you claim national security on basically everything now. And so the American public has no idea what goes on in their country and the way that you have to find out documentation now that they shifted last year when they passed that bill in Congress to where you can't just have a four-year request over, um, over the Internet. You actually have to go physically down to the Library of Congress, go onto a computer, go get the, get the documents or register yourself. They will go retrieve the documents for you. You can print them off for 10 cents a page or whatever they decide that they're going to charge you this week, and then you can take the documents with you. But you can't request anything via mail. You can't do any of this stuff. 
especially when it comes to the, the crooks in Washington. So, once again, I'm pushing those guys off to the side because that is the, the jargon and the, and the minutia that really does keep us from moving forward in society. So, Jake, what are the real problems in society? Well, I would say that national security, the, the, the label of national security, is probably one of our biggest problems. And how did national security ever come about? How did all of this stuff come about? How did the CIA come about? Where did it come from? The FBI, where did these guys come from? So we're going to get into the history of the CIA tonight and, and, and some of the ideas and, and concepts that they've explored um, throughout the years and, and probably still explore to this day. And it's really naive of us to think that these alphabet soup organizations don't really practice the same things that they've been caught practicing in the past, whether it's mind control experiments, whether it's um, um, EMF frequency um, practice on, on people, animals, individuals, what have you. I mean, these kind of experiments goes on, and they're documented, so you can't just sit here and call me a conspiracy theorist tinfoil hat where when I can show you proof that they've actually done certain studies and certain um, and actually had success in, in certain in certain areas, especially with MK Ultra and and, um, and mind control, and uh, oh, I need to put that link. I'm going to make a note to it. Um, if you guys ever want to check out an incredible video documentary, check out Darren Brown's um, documentary where he creates the Manchurian Candidate. And Darren Brown, for those of you that don't know, I, I follow him because he's a quote unquote mentalist. I think it's fascinating. Not that I believe everything he does, but I think it's fascinating how he can do certain things just by observation and um, a sleight of hand and things like that. Um, but he runs an entire NK Ultra-like program on, um, on one guy. And it's about a 45-minute documentary. Things fascinating. So please do check that out. Once again, I'll put that in the show notes. And I'll have the show notes up after the show within 15 minutes. So if you guys are listening live and you want to double-check any of this stuff, or if you want to watch some of these clips that I'm playing, because they're from documentaries, um, the first one that we're going to be listening to is um, by one of my um, favorite researchers, and thank you, Josh Wiley, for turning me on to him, um, Richard Grove and um, Jan Irvin and uh, one other gentleman talking about the history of the CIA. And so we're going to get into that clip. We're also going to talk about the history of the CIA when it revolves around um, after World War II and the collaboration um, with with Nazi sympathizers as well as um, the the... I guess, what's the best way to describe this group? The, um, the German version of the CIA um, at the end of World War II and how they were all basically brought over via an Operation Paperclip-esque type move to handle intelligence for the United States against Russia for the next 20 years. So we took the best spies from, from Germany. And, of course, when you watch like a mainline documentary like from the History Channel or something like that, they're going to spin it and say that, oh, they were, just trying to, they were just trying to position themselves to save their own skin. Well, yeah, that's one portion of it, but yet you have to realize that the American, the American special interests were heavily involved in, in PSYOPs in World War II, and they were also heavily involved in funding the Nazis, not necessarily the individual agencies themselves, but big business and... Um, and Wall Street was funding the Nazis, and they were also funding the Russians because that's how they that's how they jam. They just want to try to make cash. They want they want you to build big weapons, and they want you to shoot each other because 
the more weapons you buy, the more money they make, and the more that you can tolerate and create fear and hysteria in a society. And that's really what I get what I want to get to at the end of this. The more that you can do that, the more that you can rile up a society and keep them on the edge of um, edge of their seat, so to speak. That's why you see the DoD will have their hands on basically anything, whether it's um. And Josh made a good point of this. Uh, we chat, chatted last night. A good point about um, the DoD funded um, things like Jaws and uh, not Jaws, excuse me, things like Jurassic Park. Because anything that's going to instill fear in the public, they want to have a hand in it because fear is the mechanism for control of a society when you're looking at it from a 30,000-foot perspective. Because if we all wake up tomorrow and say, hey, I'm not afraid of Muslim terrorists, then basically the ballgame's over. And we'll all go and laugh at the TSA, and everybody will be fine, and we'll all move into a different state of consciousness, and we'll probably push away from war altogether because we'll find out how silly it is, and we can just go and drop somebody an iPad or a tablet, and of course you're still going to have the, the extreme jihadis and the extreme... Every religion, let's not exclude every, I mean, let's not just talk about the jihadis. I mean, obviously, you know, Christianity had its, you know, had its time. I mean, every religion has its time where it's extremists, and they go out and promote um, extreme viewpoints, and if you don't believe in their viewpoint, they just kill you. And that's human history. That's human nature. You become so, I guess, so mind-controlled, whether it's by the shaman or the little flickering box that sits in your living room, that you don't even stop to think about why you're doing something. You know, ever, ever ask yourself that? Ever ask yourself if you're sitting in line and you just buy a Snickers? Do you ever ask yourself when you get in the parking lot, damn, I didn't even really want a Snickers. Why did I do that? Well, you did that because people like me went to school for six years learning how to manipulate you and putting things in fancy packages and putting them at, a, at, a, at an eye level where you're going to look at them. That's why all the trashy magazines and stuff like that are at the checkout. You ever notice the trashy, trashy magazines are always about uh, eye height for a female? So... Anywhere from uh, 5'8 down to about 5 feet tall. That's typically where you'll have the trashy magazines. And um, any kind of candy bar or anything like that associated with it will typically be lower than that. And that's just for the kids because that's how it works. And that's how they manipulate you. It's kind of like when you go into the store and you find the, the name brand stuff uh, at eye level. It's called shelf space and it's very, very valuable. Uh, it's, uh, third or fourth level, you'll find all the name brand stuff. The stuff that they market the hell out of. Probably terrible for you. And any kind of organic stuff will always be on the top, and any kind of El Cheapo stuff will be on the very, very bottom. Just the way it rolls. So we're constantly being bombarded. We're constantly being manipulated. So what brings me to all of this? Well, let's understand the people that are doing the manipulation, the people that are running the experiments, the people that have black budgets. And you need to ask yourself, what's a black budget? That's a budget that's not on the books, everybody. That is a budget that the U.S. government gets out of your tax dollars, by the way, which is fantastic. And allocates them to funding crazy research projects like shrimp on treadmills or mind control devices like uh, MK Ultra or MK Naomi and things like that, where you actually do have psyops being run on American people, unwilling U.S. citizens that just get taken and hey, we're just going to run some experiments on you for like yeah, 15, 20 years. Then when we let you go, you're not going to remember who you are, what you are, or where you came from, and you can't be assimilated back in a society. You're just collateral damage. Sorry, we got some good results from you though. Appreciate that. So that's what we're trying to get at here, or at least what I'm trying to get at. You need to step out of the idea that politicians are actually going to control what happens in your life and move into the reality that large government combines as well as corporations are really, really running your life. And they're sharing data back and forth, and that's where the NSA comes into play. 
So not only are they gathering data upon you and then sharing it with these alphabet soup agencies, but they're also manipulating through marketing, manipulating you through PR, which we talked about before in the last show when we talked about propaganda. You're constantly being manipulated, constantly being bombarded. And if you don't turn the white ambient back noise down, you're going to get sucked into it. And that's why they call it the matrix, because you get sucked in and you're completely vulnerable. Because you're operating at a level of consciousness that's really not, you're really not doing anything but reacting to the stimuli that's out there. And I know that that sounds absolutely bonkers, people, but that's what's going on. You're reacting to stimuli. You're like a, um, a pigeon in the Skinner box. I played that on the last show, too, so I'm not going to bore you guys with that. If you want to hear some of these things that I'm talking about, this actually does tie into um, the last show. And I guess, I guess my whole point here is that um, the awakening process is, once again, it's not a destination. It's a, it's a state of mind. It's a state of constantly asking questions, constantly retooling your idea of reality, and then trying to come to a clear and concise, and also, please, 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 please be able to admit yourself that you were wrong. Because what I'm starting to find is I was wrong about a few things. I thought that there were some monolithic things that were actually not so monolithic at all. And it turns out it's actually something a lot, lot worse. And I know that's um, a really stupid, it sounds like a third grade um, vocabulary there. So sorry about that, people. Like really, really, but anyway. So be willing to admit to yourself that you are human, you are fallible, and you also... <coughs> Have the ability to be manipulated, quite harshly, might I add. So, now that we've gotten that little monologue over with, and I've given you the, the preface of what I wanted to cover here, let's, um, let's get into the crux of the matter. And um, this is a long, it's a long clip, but it, uh, it hits a lot of high notes, so, um, so pay attention. Uh, take notes if you want to, but um, once again, I'm going to uh, put these in all the show links after the show. And the show links will be up um, 15 minutes after the podcast. So you can check that out at wearenotcattle.net. As always, if you're tuning in live, thank you so much for spending your night with me. Um, it's only an hour, but it means a lot to me because I put a lot of time and effort into this show. And I try to produce a, a good quality show for people so they can share the message with other people and try to get you thinking outside the box. Because remember, if you just call me a conspiracy theorist, then that's not really an intellectual argument. You have to document your stuff with facts. I can document mine with um, actual government documents, and most of the time they release this stuff to the public. So I can document all my stuff. Don't just call me a conspiracy theorist and think that you've won the intellectual battle, because what's going on here in this country is hardcore mind control, especially when you look at what's going on with the illegal aliens being brought in. This is unprecedented. And I, and I know I, I sound kind of like an Alex Jonesian, you know, position here but but this is crazy just letting the borders down and just saying yeah come on in fly your kids in bring it on that's bonkers that's crazy talk people there's a reason that you have an immigration policy especially when you are the number one economic power in the world and you're going to bring a bunch of unskilled laborers in here it's it's not like we're hurting for you know for low-wage labor there's plenty of it out there like a 15% unemployment rate. Don't believe those inflated numbers. So this is getting oh, this is getting bananas. And then Obama says he wants to go to, and he has logical fallacies just laden in this whole gun thing. If I got time, I'll get to it, but I probably won't. So, I mean, I guess I got to. It's just so crazy. He's like, well, we need to do what 
Australia did. They had one mass shooting, and they just basically grabbed all the guns. We need to do that. It's time for common sense gun control. And then it's like, you know, that's not common sense. That's overreacting. Oh, my God, you have one mass shooting, and then it's all of a sudden, nope, nobody's allowed to have guns anymore. Because one person goes bonkers, everybody's collectively guilty. And he thinks that that's perfectly reasonable. And I understand that, whatever. Not even talking about him. Okay, so anyway. Oh, man. Okay, let's get into the history of the CIA. And this is uh, Richard Grove. Uh, on history, so it doesn't repeat the origins of the central intelligence community and why it's there and why it spies on Americans. So here we go. Into is the origins of this intelligence community that, that we know today. I mean, there's like 20 or 30 or more different intelligence agencies in the United States focused on both foreign and domestic surveillance. So there's a variety of these different organizations, but once upon a time, there were none, and then there were one, and I want to get into the people who you know, brought about these, uh, the fine things like the CIA, and you, before that you have to go to the OSS. And to get into that, I had to look into some of the books on the shelves of my library, books like The Old Boys by Burton Hirsch. That's one of my favorite books because it'll clearly show and demonstrate, uh, and then you can go out and verify it if you don't trust it. Uh, another one is Hugh Wilford's The Mighty Wurlitzer, uh, which is published by Harvard. It's a very respectable book. It's not conspiracy theory. This is simply understanding the, the people, places, things, money sources of these so-called intelligence agencies. And what you find are people like Alan Dulles and Frank Wisner, who are Wall Street lawyers, who are internationalists, who are people who are not so much patriots, but have allegiances to globalist, internationalist ideas where they want to dissolve boundaries of all countries around the world and then create a globalist society. And that means collectivism. That means individuals lose their rights. And that's why we as individuals care about these things and take the time to delve into history. So who wants to take the first comment on the origins of the intelligence community post-Paris Peace Conference 1919? There's a few different layers here. Obviously, there's one layer to keep the conditioning in, in place of, of what took place during World War I. And another layer is drugs and the opium trade, because a lot of the covert operations are based on that. And then you're going to have another layer, such as Miles Copeland, who founded the OSS, whose son... Stuart Copeland was in the band Police, and Ian Copeland founded IRS Records and FBI Talent, Talent Agency and these things. So then there's this other angle of it going off into the music industry and all of these sorts of things, which uh, Dave McGowan's research has exposed. So there's this multi-pronged sort of attack and angle around everything post-World War One and the different directions that they take intelligence. But it, you know, all of it seems to be more directed at the general populace than uh, than any one sort of quote unquote terrorist group, if that's even a valid term, since it's a form of government. What do you think, Kev? Yeah, I, I concur with that, and I I would also say that we probably need to go back even further than the Paris Peace Conference because what you see happening after the death of Cecil John Rhodes. Uh, and really, you know, starting in the late 1800s with Carnegie's New Republic and his attempt to uh, get Great Britain to federalize, you, you at this time you started to see a transnational uh, cooperation take place uh, that was outside of the purview of national sovereignty. 
So starting with really the Pilgrim Society, where you have the business titans and the J.P. Morgan and uh, earlier interest on both sides of the uh, Atlantic, uh, leading up to uh, getting the United States into World War I in the first place, and the uh, attempt to join the United States with the League of Nations. You find that the Dulles brothers were both involved in ecumenical movements with some of the key players of the Rhodes-Milner Roundtable Group, uh, such as Lord Lothian, uh, as well as Lionel Curtis. And so there's a religious uh, aspect of this as well in an attempt to create a universal church uh, and to create a unified society. And the OSS, when you look in the founding of the OSS and the CIA, uh, there was a British Office of Intelligence at Rockefeller Center where Stevenson, who was the tutor to Wild Bill Donovan, uh, shared the office with him. So you, you have a lot of cooperation between British and United States intelligence going back uh, even further. Uh, you know, same with C.D. Jackson and his counterpart uh, and their relationship to the international relations uh, cadre called the uh, British uh, Office for the Theory of International Politics. And this is really uh, these transnational relationships uh, which are so important to people that want to usurp national sovereignty are, are really the genesis of the intelligence uh, operations and in convincing the United States to have a uh, more friendly Atlantic, uh, Atlantic block-based relationship with Great Britain. I think you just summarized the entire episode right there. Okay, but I'm going to rewind and we're going to add one more person to uh, that uh, egregious rant of yours. The person I'd like to add is Clark Clifford, who's also a Wall Street lawyer, who created the National Security Act in 1947, which was a prerequisite for the CIA. Uh, he later was involved in the Bank of Commerce and Credit International BCCI scandal in the 1980s, a big money laundering, drug money laundering scandal, under the guise of national security. So when we, re when we rewind and look at the agenda of the founders of this intelligence community, in America at least, uh, it's an Anglo-American establishment. It's taking cues from Britain. Their agenda is social control, monopoly, of, uh, monopoly for cartel, and to insulate against competition. So when we see those James Bond movies now, having looked at history, we see that, that the MI6 basically works for an invisible banking class, not really represented in the films directly. And their competitors are who James Bond goes out and kills, and he's like an MK Ultra slave. So now that you have that angle on Ian Fleming, who was involved in... MI6, and there's a whole bunch of different angles. He also wrote a very interesting book on diamond smuggling that you might want to check out if you're into Cecil Rhodes and De Beers and following this chain of history. So Cecil Rhodes, and you mentioned Carnegie, uh, the New Republic book. I b believe that was printed in 1893, and it's one of these books where, yes, he's making all this money in America. He's fleecing America. He's controlling America, treating his, his workers like slaves, taking these cues from Rockefeller, working together. And he writes this book and says, hey, you know what? America's time has passed. It's obsolete. The new thing is internationalism. And so he's basically professing his faith and laying out this document, which was printed before the death of Cecil Rhodes and before the creation of the Pilgrim Society and creation of the Roundtable Groups and CFR and all these other things that are legitimate political history in America that should be taught in every school and every adult should be literate in these types of ideas. So while Bill Donovan and C.D. Jackson, you also mentioned, C.D. Jackson, uh, we'll talk about this later maybe, uh, but he was involved in, in the origins of the Bilderberg Group, and there's some Nazi financiers and agendas involved with that. So, uh, you know, there's psychological warfare. When you think C.D. Jackson, first, before you think publisher of these big magazines, think about the fact that his specialty is psychological warfare, and who's he surround himself with? 
uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who was also in psychological warfare during World War II, uh, Eisenhower, Nixon, these other caricatures of, of human beings that we've been you know, portrayed as our leaders. But now that we grow up to be adults, you find out these people, uh, they're not only human beings with real heirs, they're compromised and not really doing the things that we thought they were doing on their own. So jumping back into it, Jan, uh, this idea of spying and deception and counterintelligence that the intelligence community brings into our world, into our notice, it's advertised through movies. Now you can read about it every day in the newspaper with everyone being spied on these days so openly. Uh, what are your comments on how these types of organizations use, uh, call it dark shamanism, call it psychological warfare, call it black magic, uh, the black arts? How is this use of deception useful to them? And what do they gain from it? <laughs> well, it's probably just as much a double-edged sword for them because it's all done on irrationality and ignorance and these things tend to fall back on them when they're revealed rather than being upright and forthright about things. So when this type of dishonesty is always used, there's always an air of just total irrationality and underlying stupidity. Now, that being said, they're very clever with their lies and their tactics and their techniques. And um, it's plays in on you know on so many different levels of the social control be it LSD and entheogenic drugs or using logical fallacies to control people or you know providing uh, false information in the mainstream media etc these are all forms of mind control that come together you know you you can't really see it if you just look at one thing you know, you'll you probably miss it if you just, you know, but if you see compulsory education, if you see the mainstream media and all the disinformation, if you see the logical fallacies and logic not being taught and the trivium method, etc., and you see all of these different things laid out, then we can bring together a coherent picture on why and how it's used and, you know, and where it's directed at. And sure, maybe to some extent they do operations overseas so that they can create wars and false flag operations and things like that, because a lot of the way the military industrial complex works is through <clears throat> creating these covert operations and then PRing them or using false information on the other side to keep them going, etc. Now, and that's, um, that's where I wanted to kind of break it because it gets into a little bit of um, a diatribe there, but that's exactly what we saw over in the Ukraine. We had two fascistic groups that were basically fighting over control over there, and the American people don't really know what's going on. They just know that there's a civil disturbance over in the Ukraine. Never mind that it was NGOs, non-governmental organizations that were sent over there by the United States to stir up trouble, which we've done in multiple countries. And that's why I say that these alphabet soup organizations, they really do run your foreign policy has nothing to do with Obama, it has nothing to do with the Democrats or the Republicans or the once again the people that sit in the giant boob if you study um if you, if you study the uh the the real meaning of um Washington DC and the obelisk and the and the Capitol and things like that. It um so I, I don't mean to get off into a tangent, but when when we talk about these agencies and what they do and how they do it 
Jan Irvin was 100% on when he was talking about they do run ops, um, they run foreign ops, but they also run domestic ops. And then when we see the manifestation of the CIA, once it removed itself um, from being the OSS uh, and became the CIA, what happened? Well, first of all, we had groups of Nazis that came over here to the U.S., um, most, um, most notably under uh, Operation Paperclip or Project Paperclip, however you want to call it. And those were PR people. They were um, scientists. Um, thank you. They sent over um, uh, Werner von Braun to come over here to give us the intercontinental ballistic missile. So we did gain some things from the United States, but we also gained a bunch of propagandists from them. We also gained a bunch of, um, of high-level uh, ranking what they would consider CIA over there. So they came over here, and they started um, the um, individual branch of the CIA and basically ran that branch of, um, I guess it was considered counterterrorism, but it was like a specialization in anti-communist, um, anti-communist movements or something like that. And that was all headed up by former Nazis. They were given cover names and all kinds of stuff as they came over here to the United States. So the U.S. didn't really know, or the American people didn't really know that, that hey, your your CIA was actually. Um, most of its foreign policy was run by Nazis. And it's not like these guys were good guys either. I mean, these were hardened war criminals that would torture people. So this isn't like, um, you know, your daddy's, uh, oh, well, we realized that what we were doing is wrong and we're sorry and we just, you know, just trying to get a check or whatever. No, these were bad people. And we inherited them because it's one of those things, well, it's the devil you know rather than the devil you don't know. And what you'll find as you research history and you start reading the difference between um, the way that Russia was portrayed and the way that Russia really was toward the United States, it's two totally different things. Now, Stalin was an evil, evil dude. Yes, I understand that. And um, yes, the, the Soviets killed a lot of Jews as well. So it wasn't just a holocaust in, in Germany. It was also a holocaust in Russia as well, if we're going to point fingers. But um, it's... It's really disturbing to think of that if you're if you're an American, get that thing through your head and why was that never taught in history? Well, probably because you would get to a point where you would start to question, well, what why would we do that? Why why does that go on? And so I've got an article here that I'll go ahead and read and then I'm gonna go to another clip. I'm gonna read a little bit of this. Um I'm gonna read the first couple paragraphs because then I'm gonna post it because I'm gonna run out of time. So and this is from the New York Times, published um when was this published? Um, published in 2010, November 13th, and I'm going to link to this as well. And it says, uh, Nazis were given, quote, safe haven in the U.S., report says. Uh, no kidding. Yeah. Hey, welcome to the real world, people. We deal with a bunch of terrorists. Shocker. And nothing's changed because now we still deal with Al-Qaeda and we fund Al-Qaeda and we give them rockets and all kinds of stuff to go attack Assad, but... Oh, man... Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. But everything's fine. It's okay. All right. So um, it says, Washington, a secret history of the United States government's Nazi hunting operation concludes that American intelligence officials created a quote-unquote safe haven in the United States for Nazis and their collaborators after World War II and the detailed cascades of the clashes often hidden with other nations over war criminals here and abroad. The 600-page report, which the Justice Department has tried to keep secret for four years... Actually, it was a lot longer than that. They actually knew about this stuff back in the 80s, and I'm going to play a clip from um, 
an audio recording back in 1984 where they're actually talking about this in a book. So, I mean, this, is, this was not secret. Um, provides new evidence that more than two dozen of the most notorious Nazi cases in the last three decades. It describes the government's um, <coughs> posthumous um, pursuit of Joseph Mengele, the so-called um, angel of death at Auschwitz, part of, the, um, part of whose um, scalp kept the Justice Department officials in the drawer in the vigilante killings of, um, of a former Waffa um, SS soldier in Germany and the United States... Oh, and the government's mistaken identification, oh yes, of course, it was a mistaken identification, of a uh, concentration camp guard known as Ivan the Terrible. Yeah, they totally mistaken identity. I'm sure they didn't give him the passport. Uh, it's just our history so jacked up. Didn't learn about any of this stuff in school, did we? Oh, the report catalogs both success and failures of Band of Lawyers. Oh, imagine that. Historians and investigators in the Justice Department. Yeah, those guys are really clean, too, if you ever research the Justice Department and all their, and all their investigators and all of their lawyers. They're super clean, and none of them were ever Nazi collaborators, either, which created um, in 1979 to deport Nazis. Okay. Perhaps the report's most damning disclosures came in the uh, assessing the Central Intelligence Agency involvement with um, Nazi immigrants, These scholars in previous government reports had acknowledged the CIA's use of Nazis for post-war intelligence purposes. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, intelligence purposes. But the report goes further documenting the level of American complicity and deception in such operations. The Justice Department describing what calls a, quote, government collaboration with persecutors. Um, yes. Says the, the ISR or the OSI investigators learned that some of the Nazis were indeed knowingly granted entry into the United States. No, come on, man. Government will never do that. They're here to protect you. Even though government officials were uh, were aware of their past. Mm, shocker. Americans, which pride itself on the safe haven and for the persecuted, became a small measure in the safe haven of the persecutors as well, it said. The report also documents division within the government over the effort, the illegal pitfalls, relying on the testimony from Holocaust survivors of decades old. The report also concluded that Nazis who had made their way to the U.S. had almost certainly smaller than the 10,000, the figure widely cited by government officials. The U.S. Department re, um, reinstated the making of public records since 2006. Under the threat of lawsuit, it turned a heavy redaction version last month into a private research group, the National Security Archive. But then many of the mostly legal, mostly, or excuse me, many of the mostly, most legally and diplomatically sensitive portions were omitted. A complete version was obtained by the New York Times. Which is kind of bizarre in and of itself if you understand who the New York Times is run by. The Justice Department said in the report the six, um, a product of six years' work has never formally compiled and didn't represent the, the official findings. It cited numerous, um, f uh, excuse me, m numerous factual errors and omissions, but they declined to say where they were. Oh, yes, I'm sure. Okay, so you guys can read all this for themselves, and it talks about Werner von Braun and and a couple of other guys. Um, no, it talks about uh, Otto Vaughn. Um, uh, what's his last name? Um, Bushwing. There you go. So anyway, now I'm going to go to a clip um, back from 1984, and that was a terrible transition, but bear with me, people. We're trying to get there. Um, 
This is a clip from uh, a 1984 broadcast, and it's um, I'll, I'll link to the actual show if I can. And um, this is basically talking about the the werewolves and um, bringing them to the United States as being part of the CIA and um, running the operations against the uh, the the Russians. So here we go. Now keep in mind the name werewolves because that's something Niptock's going to tell you about in a second. Okay, now bear in mind also that similarly to the, the Greek situation, similar to the Greek situation we just described to you, where before hostilities between the Axis and the Allied powers had formally ended in VE Day, the British were already in essence having a shooting war with the partisans, the anti-fascist partisans in Greece. Then in effect, the, the British had already begun firing on the very people who had allowed them to quote-unquote liberate Greece, um, it, at the same time, roughly, uh, we already see the United States um, beginning to make contacts with the very self-same Nazis that they are fighting on the Western Front uh, as they drive toward Berlin to make contact with them for the same purpose, notably to overthrow any incipient uh, anti-fascist, specifically leftist or Soviet-supporting governments that might come into power in Eastern Europe. So the plan on the part of the, the Americans, with the help, the help of the obviously unrepentant Nazis, is to prevent the kind of thing happening um, in, in Eastern Europe that the British successfully uh, managed to overcome in Greece, namely the partisan forces coming to power as most of the populace doubtlessly wanted them to do. Remember Article 12 from the Treaty of Versailles to ending World War I, which, which established a pattern of allied German cooperation against Soviet Russia or against communism, even as uh, Germany was being defeated. Now this section, this stuff that we're talking about here, in some ways is one of the most critical things toward an understanding, or at least an expanded understanding, of the Cold War. Now, as we have mentioned, and we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and we should mention again, by no means is this the entire story. However, what part of the story this is, is the part that you are least likely to hear, um, not just if you're having lunch down at the Reagan Ranch, but virtually anywhere within the, uh, the political science departments of our universities or anywhere, not because it didn't happen, but because it's inconvenient and has been inconvenient for a long time. One of the main things that people say and um, and we're not going to try and convince you necessarily of anything. We'll let you make your own judgments. But one of the main things that people say these days is, well, if the Russians were such nifty people, if they weren't a bunch of creeps and murderers and killers, why did they take over Eastern Europe? Well, bear in mind the position of the Russian armies where they are have lost uh, probably 20 million people plus during World War II as a direct result of having been invaded by the Nazis. They're doing their best as they drive on Berlin to try and dismantle the fascist organizations all along their borders, some of which had been operating against the Russian, the Soviet Union, since the end of World War I. Some of these self-same organizations in one shape or another in the same areas. They're, oh, yes, go ahead. And to keep in mind, again, uh, the point can't be made uh, too strong or too often that the shooting war in Eastern Europe did not end when we were told it ended that... Uh, 
instead of main force units operating along fixed battle lines, we had a uh, de-acceleration uh, of combat into small guerrilla, guerrilla units. But uh, as Kirkwich noted, that in many areas this amounted to a minor civil war, and the guerrillas ranged far and wide and had effective control of many areas. So while on one hand the, uh, the, the Americans and the British and the French rolled in and found themselves able to, uh, to occupy Germany and start to send the boys home again, put them on ships and send them back to the United States except for small occupation forces, the Russians, on the other hand, against uh, who themselves felt that in many ways World War II had been directed, that the, so that the Nazis had been directly built up as a hitman against the Soviet Union, for which there is some historical evidence, the Russians, on the other hand, uh, found their entire army strung out through Eastern Europe, uh, literally thousands of miles away from Moscow, with civil wars, fascist-led, fascist-supported, Nazi-led, Nazi-supported, and later on American-led and American-supported civil war going on all around them. Anyway, back to uh, a book called The General Was a Spy, also about Reinhard Galen. This book is by Heinz Hörner, and uh, this was uh, copyright by Hermann. This is by... Herman, uh, Heinz Herne, excuse me, and Hermann Zoling, Z-O-L-L-I-N-G, and Herne is spelled H-O-H-N-E, copyright 1971 by Coward McCann, and I'm not even going to try that one, Geogen Incorporated, New York, a hardcover. Anyway, they're talking about Galen and the RSHA, which is the Reist, Sikreist Hauptamt, which is the, Reist, the Reich uh, Secret uh, Security Bureau. And it says, Galen ultimately became so close an ally of the RSHA that during the death throes of Adolf Hitler's regime, he, together with the SS, with SS officers Skorzeny and Pritzman, was charged with military direction of that macabre partisan and resistance organization known as Werewolf, intended to spread panic among the enemy. And an order dated November 12, 1944, dealing with quote, battle in the rear of the enemy, this is the Red Army, the Army General Staff Operations Section laid down that foreign armies east from the Hera Ost will be responsible for cooperation with the RSHA on all matters concerning forward intelligence units. On February 6, 1945, the strategic group of the General Staff urged Army groups to support werewolf energetically, saying, quote, all units in whose vicinity werewolf groups are located will take measures for the supply and welfare of the werewolf groups concerned. Anyone so determined to continue to the bitter end could be sure of the approbation of his superiors. Galen climbed several rungs of the ladder. He was promoted to major general. He became deputy chief of the strategic group of the general staff. He was even entrusted with a general staff security. In the event of catastrophe, he was to arrange for the staff's immediate evacuation. Now, this is interesting in light of some stuff Dave is going to tell you about Reinhard Galen. It's also interesting in light of some of the stuff we've covered on other public affairs shows here at KFJC, uh, detailing where exactly the remains of the German general staff and the Nazi high command uh, were in fact immediately evacuated to at the end of World War II, and most of them were into the safe and loving arms of the Western intelligence forces. Okay, now take note of the fact uh, in that passage that uh, this fellow Reinhard Galen was very close to the RSHA, the Reichssicherheits Hauptamt. That basically, the RSHA was the SS Security Department. It incorporated something called the SD, the SS Intelligence Service, and the Gestapo. Okay, so the RSHA was basically 
perhaps the single most infamous institution of the Third Reich. The final solution was uh, the, the extermination of European Jewry was accomplished under RSHA auspices. Uh, the RSHA main facility at Wannsee was where the final solution was drawn up. And so uh, note the close cooperation between Galen and the RSHA. That means Galen was very, very close operationally and of necessity ideologically with the SS. And take note of the fact that uh, the werewolf guerrilla groups, which Galen set up with an SS man named Otto Skorzeny, were, like the other guerrilla groups in Eastern Europe, under the nominal command of OKW, Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, the German military high command. Now, Reinhard Galen <clears throat> was basically, your reference to an organization called FHO. FHO is Fremdehera Ost, or Foreign Armies East. That was Adolf Hitler's Eastern Front Intelligence Organization. It handled all of Hitler's Eastern Front Intelligence. Galen was in charge of Fremdehera Ost. He was Hitler's chief intelligence officer against the Soviet Union. Now, three months after VE Day in Europe, three months after the war officially ended, and as we've seen, it did not end at that time. It officially ended. Reinhard Galen was flown into the United States in the uniform of a four-star general, and basically Galen and his entire Eastern Front Intelligence Organization, which was still in place at the end of World War II, were then grafted onto the fledgling CIA. And Galen and his entire organization, the former Fremdehera Ost, Hitler's Eastern Front Intelligence apparatus, complete and intact, and incorporating a great many of the white Russians who had initially opposed the Bolsheviks and then fled into Germany, leaving behind them an intelligence service. These, this, this organization, FHO, jumped to the fledgling CIA, became the de CIA's Department of Russian and Eastern European Affairs, the exclusive purveyors of intelligence on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe for more than a decade after World War II. It then became the official NATO intelligence organization, providing NATO with up to 70% of its intelligence on Russia and Eastern Europe. And then it became the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the BND, the West German Intelligence Service, which it is for this day. And two very important details to remember about Galen. Number one is the fact that uh, the Galen organization paved the way for more than 4,000 SS and Gestapo men to move up into the U.S. intelligence system, where many of them remain to this day. The second fact to remember is the fact that Reinhard Galen not only set up many of these guerrilla groups which waged war until the early 50s in uh, the Ukraine and Poland and Eastern Europe, but Galen was in radio contact with many of these groups throughout the closing days of the, of the Third Reich and clean on up into his tenure with the CIA. And not only that, but Galen and his CIA sponsors were shipping weapons and liaison officers to these guerrilla groups while they were fighting against our wartime allies, the Soviet Union. So that basically, the Eastern Front guerrillas simply jumped to the United States with Galen. In essence, they continued to wage war throughout the closing days of the Third Reich and simply jumped uniforms. Basically, we picked up Hitler's tab in Eastern Europe. So there you go. <clears throat> and um, once again, I'm going to have links to all this um, on the website here, and I was actually putting all that stuff together as the, uh, as the clip was playing. But... Um, yeah, I actually don't have time to get into any of the experiments or anything like that, so I'm going to have to make another segment, and I'll probably air it on Sunday. So if you guys want the second half, or uh, I guess uh, the other half of the story, I've given you some background on who the CIA was, how it was set up, who started it, um, and you can go into some really deep dives if you'd like to. Um, it, it'll, it makes for a fascinating night of just um, staying up late and, and reading a bunch of... Um, 
reading a bunch of um, old documents, I guess, if you want to, or just making some connections with people that you probably never knew. And I'll actually um, put a link to um, I'm going to put a link to Richard Grove's brain on there. He's got an application that basically ties all this stuff in together, makes it really easy for you to navigate. So if you want to do some research on this. I'll put a link to that on there. You can download that to your PC. Um, I highly recommend it because if you get into a situation like this and you're starting to research a group, he kind of points you in the right direction, and then you can you can go and and find yourself your own literature, your first person accounts, your uh, your books to read, and kind of get caught up and and figure out um, what you want to know about the uh, about the world and how the world works. But I think it's really fascinating to understand how the CIA operates and why they operate the way they do. And um, not necessarily everybody that's in the CIA is a bad dude, because the majority of them are probably good people. Um, but the the history of that organization is very shady. The history of how it was set up is pretty shady. And um, you know, once again, they were supposed to be set up under the auspices that they would never operate um, domestically, and um, and we know that they do now. And so that's the that's the big distinction, and that's what we need to focus on as American citizens. You need to. Understand that the CIA is a is a foreign intelligence agency. It is not a domestic intelligence agency, and that's what makes the NSA and what the NSA does so disturbing. And then they share information with the NSA and the FBI, or with the um, CIA and the FBI, and even your local municipalities through the guise of homeland security. Remember, all of this stuff because a bunch of if you believe the official narrative, a bunch of Saudi Arabians flew planes in the building, so we attacked Iraq. So there you go. And we had magic passports, and three buildings fell. But remember on the last show, uh, Jake Tapper said that there were only two buildings that fell. So, oh, actually, he admitted that three, but they showed the brochure with only two of the towers on there. So it's um. It's a really, really disturbing world, people, and I understand that it's kind of scary when you think about things like this because you want to believe that your government's good, and that's kind of the way that we've been raised and brainwashed through our you know, compulsory education of 15,000 hours of public schooling is that we believe that we're the good guys because that's what our history teaches is that we're the good guys, and we never run ops or anything like that. We never overthrow leaders, and we never you know, run PSYOPs in other nations, and we never run PSYOPs in the American public, and we don't experiment on people and run mind control experiments for 20 years and then tell you that we stopped and we probably didn't. And now we're talking about putting chips in people. So I really wouldn't trust a chip, people. I wouldn't trust a chip in my body with a billion dollars. From this government and from this organization and the way that these people operate, absolutely not. No chance. But there's going to be people that will like it because it'll be fun. It'll be fancy and kind of like a, a brave new world. They'll, they'll be the people with all the technology and we'll go out and live in the, in the woods, I guess. But I really don't think that society is going to end up like that because I think that eventually the facade is going to fall. And I really hope it does. And I don't hope it does in a, in a crashing of the you know, um, clash of civilizations type thing. And I, don't, and I hope it doesn't happen in an um, economic um, economic implosion kind of situation. I, I would rather see a, a gradual awakening and a gradual move from from being intellectually stunted and caring about things that don't really matter to start caring about um, things that really do matter, like your health, your mental clarity, um, your mental ability, the things that you know in society, the thing how do you how the world operates, what really goes on with your tax dollars, you know, instead of just of this cognitive dissonance that we have to where we just 
we just cozy up to whatever narrative sounds good because it, it makes us feel better and then we don't have to go do something about it because if we knew how if we knew how you know the world really worked then we'd probably have to go out and, and not really protest because I don't think protesting gets us very far although that voting with your dollar is probably the best tool that we have and I know that that sounds kind of cliche and corny but it really is you know put your money where your mouth is if you um if you don't want to support network television, then don't buy cable. And I know that sounds like radical to say that here in America. What do you mean don't have cable? Uh, my wife and I aren't going to have cable when we move into our new house. So, you know, just take little steps in your life that you believe are going to make a difference. And just understand that your dollar has much more of an impact than, than your voice will. And I know that that's really, that's really sad to say because we're, you know, we're... Um, Let's face it, we're a, na- we're a nation full of loudmouths, and we're a nation full of people that, that know everything. But, um, but I think the, the, the more that you research and the more that you question your own knowledge base, the better off you're going to be in society because you're not going to assume anything. You're going to go research things for yourself. You're not going to assume that anthropogenic global warming is... is um, all scientists agree. Everybody agrees because Magic Box told me so. And oh, the, the sky is falling because of the ice caps melting, and and everything's going to be underwater, and it's all humans' fault. And no, it's done that before. I mean, this is a dynamic planet, and nothing is stagnant. The ecosystem is not stagnant. It's a it's a dynamic world that we live in, and it's a fun world, and it's it's full of beauty and and art and 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 humankind and 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 just very fascinating stuff i mean you want to get dazzled just go out on a on a night and look up at the sky and think about that every little thing that you see up there that lights up the sky all those little dots those are little suns out in the middle of nowhere how fascinating is that little suns out in the middle of nowhere who knows how many planets are out there also there was an article i guess i didn't even look at it today but i saw the headline that uh there's a um, a scientist believes that we can travel faster than the speed of light, which which will open a lot of doors, I guess, if it's possible. And, and what I thought was absolutely fascinating was the speed of light fluctuates. So I'm going to have to ask Tom Campbell about some of these things. I mean, he's a physicist. He he's done enough research to kind of get an idea of of how I mean, done enough calculations to understand how this stuff works. He's dealing with like particle accelerators and stuff like that. I'm sure he has a pretty good pretty good grasp on it. Much better grasp than I would. So, I mean, that's, um, that's basically it for the show, everybody. Um, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. You know, follow me on, on Twitter, like me on Facebook. You can friend me on Facebook. I'll be your buddy. As long as you don't post a bunch of weird stuff on my, on my wall or whatever it's called, newsfeed anymore. And I've been really bad about keeping up with social media because I got a six-month-old, and she's, um, she's a handful. And uh, but she's absolutely worth it. It's fantastic. It's fun. I highly recommend having a kid if you're ready for it. If you're ready for the sleep deprivation, if you're ready for sacrificing everything that you um, that you thought you cared about, by all means, you will find a whole new part of your psyche that gets opened up. More, you know, I can't remember what they're called, micro neurons, or I can't remember what they're called right now, motor neurons, whatever. Those things will get fired up, and you'll um, you'll expand your consciousness. Once again, it's all about. Life's all about experiencing um, events and, and how you react to those events. That's what you, what's going to propel you forward. 
and and how we interact with one another is also going to uh, set the mood that you're in. You ever notice that people that always smile and and say hi to everybody, they're always 90 typically seconds. typically in a better mood than the people that uh, that just go sit in their cube and and uh, sip their coffee and just are grumpy all day. And that's the kind of mentality I want you to have. I want you to go out tomorrow, and I want you to be happy. I want you to smile. I want you to to think about how incredibly grateful and incredibly fantastic it is to sit on a rock that's spinning at 6,000 miles an hour, and you can't even feel that. Think about that for a minute. Big giant rock, a bunch of water on it, and some volcanoes going off every day, uh, earthquakes every day, of course, glaciers melting every day. Um, Just incredible stuff. I mean, enjoy life. We're all in this spaceship Earth together, and I know that, that was a... You guys have watched the, a documentary um, all watched over my Machines of Love and Grace that'll, that'll make you laugh. But truly, we're, we're in this together. It's all or nothing, basically, um, especially with the people we got running things that want to... Oh, man. I can't even get into it. Don't have time. So Anyway, look for part two. I guess I'm going to air that this Sunday. I'll probably find time uh, either tomorrow night or um, Saturday to record it. So thanks for listening, everybody. Get a friend. Get informed. Get involved. Um, peace, love, and Everyone, take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.